Is this year's concern about election rigging and violence at the polls unprecedented? Where do Donald Trump's claims fit within disputes over American elections? Have we as a country gotten better since Bush versus Gore at resolving election disputes? On episode 15 of the ELB podcast, we talk to Ohio State's Ned Foley, author of Ballot Battles, The History of Disputed Elections in the United States. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law blog. I'm joined today by Professor Edward B. Foley of the Ohio State University School of Law. Ned directs the Election Law at Maritz program, where he also holds the Ebersold's Chair in Constitutional Law. His recent book is Ballot Battles, The History of Disputed Elections in the United States, published by Oxford University Press. Ned also serves as the reporter for the American Law Institute's Election Law Project, which is developing nonpartisan rules for the resolution of disputed elections. Ned, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rick. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure, and I enjoyed your book uh, so much, and it's, it's certainly a timely book that uh, I thought we could actually start there. With, with all this talk we've been hearing about rigged elections, I'd, I'd like a little bit of a historical perspective. Is this as bad as it's ever been, or, or has it been worse? And, and how were election disputes resolved, say, at the time of the Republic, at the time of the Civil War, beginning of the 20th century and now, how do, how do we compare historically to the American uh, experience? It's been a lot worse in the past. So I guess that is a good news story. Uh, the 19th century was much worse than the 20th century. Uh, that's painting with a broad brush, but it's accurate. And I guess we have reason to hope that, you know, despite what we're seeing this year, that, that on balance, there's reasons to be optimistic for the 21st century. Uh, so one, one takeaway from the book is that the founders were not perfect. They were good. They were human. They gave us a, a, a pretty good start to the democratic project that America is and has evolved into over the centuries. But, uh, but they uh, struggled with their own uh, ballot counting disputes. Uh, there was coercion at the polls, even during the Revolutionary War before we had the Constitution. There was violence at the polls uh, in the 1830s in particular uh, during a kind of a wave of immigration back then. Uh, and there was violence throughout the 19th century uh, in the context of vote counting disputes. And again, the good news is that violence largely disappears uh, in the 20th century. And what do you think explains this generally speaking, peaceful transition to power. I should say peaceful transitions of power that we've seen uh, over the last, say, 100 years. I think there's a couple of factors. One is uh, the 19th century tended to leave these disputes in the hands of the state legislatures. And there is no more um, thoroughly partisan body for handling a vote counting dispute than the state legislature. I mean, they're inherently partisan institutions. And so it was very easy for the, the party that lost in the state legislature to feel like it was robbed. I mean, we, you know, we're hearing the term rigged election or stolen election thrown around this year, but it was really thrown around a lot 
uh, back then and, and with some legitimacy in some context because the legislature would really manipulate the counting of the votes. Sometimes there would be ballot box stuffing, but you could uh, often change the result just by doctoring the count in the legislature. So if, if the majority party did that, the minority party felt really wrong, and they often took to, to militias or guns to try to try to um, right that wrong. So, so the what happened uh, in the twentieth century again, painting with a broad brush. There are counterexamples either way, but but the tendency was to put these disputes into courts, mostly state courts, uh, really exclusively state courts in the twentieth century. We don't get federal court involvement in this until the end of the 20th century. But uh, uh, but state courts, they have their problems. They can sometimes be partisan. But on balance, they're a much better institution than the state legislature. There is a sense that they're going to be handled by the rule of law. Uh, and the, and it, it's going to be on the merits of who actually got the most votes, not just pure power grab. So that's one, I think, huge factor in explaining the difference between the 19th and 20th century. Uh, the other factor has to do with changing cultural attitudes about democracy more broadly. I think the progressive era has been underappreciated uh, in our field of election law uh, and maybe this particular field be, um, because even if we don't sort of uh, follow the rules of the progressive era itself, it's not like you can point to a particular law in this area and say, well, that was the progressive era's law on this topic. But the progressive era really transformed attitudes about democracy um, and, and in a way gave us our much more modern conception of, of democratic fairness uh, in lots of ways, and, and including uh, women getting the vote in the end of the progressive era. And although I can't prove it, I think the fact that women got the vote equally with men changed the atmospherics around the electoral process. Uh, it, in some sense, it kind of demilitarized the polling place. I mean, the polling places could be a pretty uh, pretty dicey uh, location, particularly in urban areas. Uh, and again, I'm not to say that they were militarized zones all the time, but, but, but they could be rough and tumble um, places when when both men and women go down to vote together at the at the neighborhood polling place, whether it's the city or the country or what have you, um, it, it changes the atmosphere of, of the voting process. And, uh, and and so whether it's that in particular or just more general attitudes about what our democracy requires to be a good democracy, I, I think we we have a big shift in the progressive era that that insists on on vote counting being fair. Now, one of the. Uh, analogies that people have been making to this, uh, the comments of Donald Trump about waiting to concede and until if and when he would lose uh, is Bush versus Gore and Al Gore's uh, first concession and then taking back that concession as the matter went through the courts during 36 days. But I got an email uh, this morning where uh, a reader of the election law blog said, well, maybe Hayes Tilden, maybe 1876 is the best analogy to now. Do, do you see an analogy in either of these historic elections to the current period? I agree with your reader in, in the sense that I do think Hayes Tilden perhaps is the, the more relevant analogy, although I caution 
with respect to either one because both of those examples were are predicated on extremely close outcomes where you can really get traction over fighting over the results. Um, and of course, we don't know what election night's going to look like this year until we see preliminary returns. But if the polling is any indication, it's not going to be the kind of close election that either 2000 or 1876 were. So, um, so even the 1876 an analogy, uh, I would say we have to be cautious about it. But the reason why I think it is more relevant is because of the role that Congress played institutionally in ultimately resolving that, that dispute. And, and I think that's relevant for two reasons this year. One is the U.S. Supreme Court, as we all know, has eight justices, not nine. And, and so there is some thought that maybe the, US, the court can't be a factor this year that it might otherwise be. Um, but even apart from that, if, if, if Donald Trump on election night you know, refuses to concede, even if the preliminary returns show a landslide and an extremely lopsided such that there really wouldn't be an occasion to fight the way there was in 2000 or even 1876, then it seems to me the, the institutional significance of Congress really comes to, to the fore because Congress ultimately receives the electoral votes from the states, pronounces that we have a president uh, elect in, officially. And, and so it's, it's Congress, you know, Speaker Ryan, Senator McConnell, having in this institutional capacity under the 12th Amendment, under the Constitution, that, that could kind of settle the election for us. And that would make it a little bit closer to 1876 compared to 2000. So just moving to today, then, uh, what are your biggest fears about Election Day and the day after Election Day? You said that um, if the election's not close, it might look one way, but if it's close, it might look another. I thought maybe you could expand a little bit on that. Sure. Well, I, I guess um, at the moment, my, my biggest fear, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, but, but are you know, what might happen at polling places on Election Day um, you know, I sure hope there isn't any violence, but given the unprecedented nature of campaign discourse this year, many people are, are more concerned about the, the possibility of, of violence at polling places. Again, that's not something that we saw in the 20th century. You did see it in America in the 19th century. So that would be a real step backwards for us. But I'm, you know, I'm concerned about a bomb scare or a bomb threat that that doesn't actually cause violence itself, thank goodness, but that um, does keep people away from the polls. It's a form of deterrent. Uh, you know, I hope we don't have that, but but again, the atmospherics this year are so charged that there might be that. And I know you've talked about uh, the risk that the kind of denial of service attack on the internet last week could, um, even if it doesn't shut down the voting systems because they're not hooked up to the internet, if it shut down, if it causes voters to have difficulty finding their polling location or or we have an attack on the electoral grid that takes out, um, you know, the the, um, the power in a particular state or a particular city. You know, again, I hope none of this transpires, but but I think there's reasons to be concerned that, that some of that 
disruption of voting may 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 occur, uh, and then and then the system's going to have to figure out if the magnitude of the disruption is such as to compromise the integrity of the election. And that's a very dicey proposition. Again, we don't know what facts exactly we would be dealing with. Um, so that's one one thing. I guess, um, I guess I am concerned for the sake of, of closure and, 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 and kind of civic um, solidarity and our expectations about the way democracy functions that that if uh, let's again let's hypothesize that that Donald Trump doesn't want to give the standard concession speech on election night, um, you know I think that'll be something of a challenge for our country to to get through. But I'm I guess I don't want to be overly uh, alarmist with respect to that. Again, it depends a little bit about what the facts on the ground are regarding the preliminary returns. Uh, I you know my hope and instinct is that if it's really a landslide, everybody else will. Essentially, recognize that, thereby isolating him and just a few supporters, and making it relatively inconsequential that he doesn't offer a gracious concession speech. Again, by hypothesis, but but the scenario—I I don't think we have to get to a, a Florida 2000 scenario for it to look a little dicier. If we remember 2004, John Kerry had to make a decision. Uh, and he waited until the following morning because there were facts to think about in terms of the number of provisional ballots in Ohio relative to the apparent margin in, in the preliminary returns. And there were 150,000 provisional ballots and the margin uh, against him at the moment, at that moment, was about 120,000. Now, he and his lawyers looked at that and said, well, the math isn't going to work because not all those provisional ballots are going to count. And they're not going to even the ones that count. They weren't weren't all going to be cast for me. So I don't have a realistic shot. So I might as well concede. But given what Mr. Trump himself has said and what some of his advisors have said, in that kind of situation, you can imagine him saying, "Well, I'm not saying anything until all those provisional ballots get looked at." That might be a two-week process in some states, or a three-week process. But I'm, but we don't have results until, until those ballots are counted. And technically, he's right. I mean, there is no, there is no official uh, certification of election, and therefore no official winner until all the ballots are looked at, including provisional ballots. And uh, um, one of the reasons why I've invoked elections that nobody thinks about, uh, 1884 and 1916, is because our country did survive when the candidate said, I'm not going to concede until we get an official certification because I want that process to prove exactly who the winner was. Now, in both those instances, 1884 and 1916, they were quite close. They weren't Bush versus Gore close, but they were pretty close. Um, You get the sense that maybe the Trump campaign is going to try to utilize every available procedure regardless of how close it actually is but we don't know that we're speculating but that is certainly something i'm i'm looking out for i know you've studied some recent close elections including say the uh, minnesota recount of uh 2008 between norm norm coleman and and al franken and that was uh, i think generally seen as a very positive um well-done recount and then uh, legal proceeding in terms of transparency, in terms of 
what I think you call tripartisanship. But that was a recount and process that took eight or nine months. Can you talk about the special challenges that come from trying to deal with recounts uh, or challenges for the presidency? And I know this is some of the work you and Steve Hufner have been doing at the American Law Institute. And, and, and what, what, what would be, if we do have either this election or a future presidential election where it is as close as Bush versus Gore was, uh, what are those challenges and, and what are the holes in the laws uh, related to counting electoral college votes that we need to worry about? Yeah, uh, very important points, I think. Uh, and they are big challenges, and it has to do with timing. Um, you know, the only date in the Constitution is January 20th. We have to have inauguration January 20th. But Congress, is, as it's entitled to do under the Constitution, has specified some other key dates. So election day being, you know, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So for this year, November 8th, that's that's a congressionally mandated date. And then uh, there are a couple of other key dates along along the way. Um, going backwards, uh, on January 6th is the date that Congress has specified for receiving the Electoral College votes from the states. Um, so, and so that's a constitutionally important date because of the nature of the proceeding. It doesn't have to be January 6th, but it is. Uh, and then the other constitutionally crucial date is the meeting of the presidential electors themselves in all 50 states. And that's always mid-December. It's always a Monday, kind of in the middle of December, based on this congressional calendar. And then Congress added a provision, and this comes from the 19th century when communication was slower, and, uh, but basically said that if a state can finish it, any dispute that it might have in a presidential election, over the ballots cast by the citizens in November that determine who the electors are in each of the states. If, if there's a dispute about that, if, if the state can resolve that dispute by what's come to be known as the safe harbor deadline, then Congress had, purports to bind itself and honor what that state did. Um, and the safe harbor deadline by the, the math of the calendar is always five weeks after election day. Five weeks is not a lot of time for recounts and litigation over provisional ballots and any contest of an election that might make claims that absentee ballots had improprieties or what have you. And the Minnesota example you mentioned is exactly right. It was transparent. It was well done in terms of the fairness of the process, but it took you know, essentially eight months, not five weeks. I mean, they, they didn't have an answer as to who won the Senate race in 2008 on the date that the Electoral College was meeting in the same state of Minnesota uh, to decide you know, which candidate won the presidential election in Minnesota. So um, no state is well equipped, unfortunately, to handle this. We could talk about other examples, including Washington State in 2004, but Florida 2000 itself shows. I mean, they, the, the whole point of Florida 2000 is that Florida was incapable of achieving resolution uh, in a way that was compliant with equal protection values, according to the court, and, and do that in a, in a five-week period. So what this American Law Institute project um, is designed to do, and you know, of course, we, we're very glad that you're an advisor to that project, uh, is designed to come up with a streamlined, efficient, maximally efficient set of procedures that would give a state the best possible chance 
of finishing a dispute like Florida 2000 within the five week uh, framework. And you and again, you have to it has to be a it's like, you know, uh, and on a on a on a small boat, you know, the the size of the bedroom is small and the size of the, all the facilities are small. Well, you have to kind of shrink down the size of, of the recount and the contest to make it fit the available the available space in terms of time. Uh, and, and we've got some model procedures on on how to do that. It, you know, to give you an example of, of, of why it's really in engineering, many states understandably don't bother to hold recounts until after they've certified the so-called canvassing of the returns, because why trigger a recount until you have a certified count to begin with? Ohio is a state that does this. So if the canvas takes three weeks, and that's at best, given how they treat provisional ballots, you couldn't even begin a recount until after the, the, the those three weeks are, are finished. Well, that that gets you in a hole already if you have to finish everything in five weeks. So maybe for a presidential election, you can flip it and, and start the recount right away while you're still waiting for voters to come up with the information to verify their provisional ballot. So maybe we could save a, little, a few dates by accelerating the recount relative to the rest of the process. That's an example of, of what these model rules are, are designed to do. I was thinking about your boat, boat analogy. Hopefully, we're not going to have a sinking boat. Uh, yeah, right. to think of the boat going from one place to another. Yeah, maybe that's not the best analogy. <laughs> that's what that's what came to mind. At the the engineering, you know, trying to design something when they, when it's very tight tolerances. Yes. It, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the different roles of states versus federal courts in resolving election disputes. I know this is one place where you and your colleague and my colleague Dan Takaji differ, where Dan is, a, I think, a very strong believer in the backstop role of the federal courts. And if I understand your work correctly, you have a, more faith in state courts. And of course, many state court judges are elected in partisan elections. Uh, many of them that are even not elected are not life tenured. And so I'm wondering what you see as the relative benefits of, of each system for resolving disputes, if you can generalize. Yeah, I think I'm actually closer to Dan um, than, than maybe you perceived or, or maybe I've evolved uh, closer to Dan in that regard. Um, I guess there is part of me that does believe that our federalism system, whether we like it or not, does require making state uh institutions of first line of defense. And I think that's particularly true in the context of a presidential election, whether we like it or not, because of this historical anomaly that that it's state legislatures that have the authority to figure out the method for appointing presidential electors. So if they want their state courts to do it, that's kind of their constitutional prerogative. Now, of course, they have to comply with equal protection and so forth. But but um, you know, unlike Congress's power to create an entire different electoral regime for congressional elections, I'm, I'm not sure Congress has that same constitutional authority for presidential elections, even if as a policy matter, I think that that would be better. I do think our electoral college is an archaic system that we should get rid of, but that doesn't seem to be very, uh, very likely. And, and one of the things I discovered in doing this book that that James Madison thought that. I mean, Matt, there's this quote that I stumbled across in a letter by Madison in which he, in the 1820s, 
he looks back and said, you know, the low moment of the convention in Philadelphia in 1787 was when we got around to thinking about presidential elections and we came up with the electoral college. And, and, and it was at the end of the summer, we were tired. It was a hot summer. So, we, and we were fatigued and, and it was just, you know, not our best work. And he himself wanted to, uh, to amend it. And, and so we, sometimes we, when we, when we think, especially lawyers and constitutional law people, when they think of Madison, they sort of freeze him in time at the moment of the Philadelphia Convention, forgetting that he was very young back then. And of course, he served as president. He saw a lot of American history afterwards. So the wisdom of James Madison that we should listen to is not the wisdom of 1787, but the wisdom of 1820 as he reflected on his own work after the fact. Um, so uh, with that in mind, I, I think I do think state courts relative to federal courts are more likely to be partisan, um, less likely to handle these disputes well. I think evidence out of an Alabama case and a Rhode Island case and a couple other cases from the book show that. And, and frankly, one of the um, conclusions of the book that I wasn't necessarily anticipating and, and maybe a little bit provocative is my take on Bush versus Gore itself, because I think insofar as Bush versus Gore reverses a century of U.S. Supreme Court precedent that required the federal judiciary to stay out of these disputes, uh, that wh whatever you think about the, the decision to freeze, to stop the recount and not have a remand, looking to the future, Bush versus Gore now authorizes the federal judiciary if not to be the first line of defense in these cases, but to be a backstop, as Dan has said. And, 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 and therefore, if, if we have reason to think that the system in a particular state is partisan in a, in a kind of biased way, we might have reason to hope that the federal court would be less so. And, and if that, if, if, if the, if the difference between the 19th and 20th century is we took these out of state legislatures, which was the worst possible institution, put them into state courts, better institution, but not perfect. In the 21st century, we may get more of these disputes in federal court, which is a still better institution, maybe not perfect, but, but, but preferable to state courts. So that's the reason why I'm more optimistic about the 21st century as a whole. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. I was going to ask you to look ahead to 2032 to the inevitable race between Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump <laughs> and ask you how you think our how we run our elections might be different. Or do you think we'll be looking at the same things the way James Madison looked back and and saw some of the same things that uh, he saw when when uh, things started with him? Yeah, so that was out of a crystal ball, of course, but um, so one cautionary note is is even in 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 twenty I remember both after two thousand and then after twenty ten there were these kind of decade retrospectives and decade you know and and where where's our electoral system going to be in twenty twenty when we've got a whole decade or you know a whole couple of decades to kind of improve things and fix things and you know twenty twenty is just around the corner now and. And do we have all those improvements in place? No. Um, on the other hand, um, we may be getting better voting systems. Hopefully we are gonna scrap the electronic machines that don't have paper trails, something I, I think you and I agree on. 
Um, and, and so it may be that thanks to people like Dean Logan out in LA County and others that we actually do get a much better voting system that will reduce the incidence of, of disputes. I mean, again, one lesson of history is that technological improvements can really lower the, the, the terrain or reduce the terrain on which disputes are useful. So we just have a lot fewer of these disputes in the 20th century after the adoption of the so-called Australian ballot and after adoption of, of lever machines, which you know, nowadays we think of them as clunky, but they were an improvement of, at, the, at the time. Uh, and so maybe we'll get some good technology in place that means we won't be fighting over squiggles on oval ballots, just like we've gotten rid of hanging chads. We may ovals that are fill, half filled in, like they had to look at in Minnesota, m might be a thing of the past. So, so I'm optimistic about, about that. Um, I, I don't believe that we will ever be able to eliminate bases for fighting over ballots in close elections. We can, again, we can this, is a, this field is all about risk management and risk reduction. So if the election of 2032 ends up being incredibly close, the, the reason to be optimistic is because it will have become well settled that an expectation that federal courts have to be involved and that they do a pretty good job. Um, or even better, which I think is less likely, that, that we create some specialized nonpartisan tribunals the way Canada and Australia and Britain and some other countries have tried to do. And we realize that as good as federal courts are, we can do one step better by, by creating special courts. I don't hold my breath for that, but um, there's been so much energy in the voting field over the last couple of decades. It's not out of the question that we could we could make make progress. Um, in conversations with other historians about the book since it's come out, uh, a couple of people have have picked up on this notion that I mentioned about the progressive era, but also that the civil rights era, um, for cultural reasons, created expectations about democracy that um, that then translated into real improvements in the system. So it's not just one person, one vote out of Reynolds versus Sims. It's a whole attitude that, that in order to be a healthy democracy, we have to meet expectations that we weren't meeting as a, as a country. And, and that, that really meant something. And it might be that a positive backlash to the voting wars of today that you have written so eloquently about is a new cultural moment analogous to the progressive era, analogous to the civil rights era, that, that is a kind of reaffirmation and even more than a reaffirmation, a kind of a deepening and extension of our democratic values that is culturally transformative, that even raises the expectations into the future about what we will tolerate and what we won't in terms of mistakes and shenanigans and, and, and maladministration. You know, and if that kind of cultural tr transformation occurred, like we had in the progressive era, like we had in the civil rights era, if we had that over the next decade as a backlash to the, the bad voting wars, that would really be a positive development. Well, we're on an optimistic note, so we better stop talking before we go back into the sinking ship. Uh, <laughs> let me remind everyone listening that Ned's new book is called Ballot Battles, 
the history of disputed elections in the United States, you should pause this podcast and go to Amazon and order that book to be delivered. So you'll have it. You could read it while you're waiting for the returns to come in on Election Day. Ned, I'm so glad you're able to take the time in this very busy time and, and talk about your fascinating work and these very important issues. Likewise, I really appreciate your giving me this opportunity. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I welcome Ed and I look forward to the next time we get a chat, chance to chat. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye. Goodbye.